Blog Talk Radio. I always wait for that Blog Talk Radio to come on. Before I get started, to our off-the-shelf listeners, I want to welcome you to another. It is absolutely gorgeous. The trees outside are almost a, 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 like an autumn orange and yellow, and leaves are all over the ground outside of the area where I live. The other night it was snowing, so it's really but it's absolutely beautiful. The sun is shining. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous day. I want to welcome you again to Off the Shelf for this Saturday, November the 15th. I hope you guys are getting ready for Thanksgiving for those of you who celebrate Thanksgiving. And we really want to thank you for joining us and being here with us this morning. As I always tell you, it is a joy. I, I love doing Off the Shelf on Saturday mornings, and we always have such wonderful guests I've learned something from every guest we have had on the show, and I know our listeners enjoy the guests that we bring. For those of you who are loyal listeners who've been with us for going on 11 years, I want to thank you for being here with us. And I like to let people know early on in the show, I know some t- tune in after we're midway through, and some like to catch the show in the in the uh, archives. But I'd like to introduce myself for the the new listeners so you know who is talking. And I'm your host, Denise Turney, and I'm coming to you live from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love. And I thank you so much again for your support. I want to tell you, if you love mystery and romance and if you enjoy watching relationships evolve and you value rich entertainment, if you love those things, I really think you will love Love Pour Over Me. It's very thought-provoking, and you're going to feel deep emotions as you read the story, particularly as you watch the relationship between a man and a woman and the the same man and his father. They have a complicated relationship as you watch that evolve and transform. You can read excerpts of Love Pour Over Me, at chistel.com, C-H-I-S-T-E-L-L.com. It's in print and in ebook format, so you can get it at Amazon, you can get it at Barnes & Noble, you can get it at Walmart. If you don't see it on the store shelves, just ask the clerk for it, and they can special order it for you because it's carried by the largest book distributors in the world. So remember, treat yourself to a copy of Love Pour Over Me this holiday season. And now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest. I, I enjoyed, as I always do, researching for today's show. Uh, there's two different angles we, we're going to cover in the, in the show, focusing mainly on the author's, this, this special guest's first novel. And our special guest today is Dr. Joan Curtis. And Dr. Curtis is an award-winning author. She is the author of the book's, of the, her first novel, The Clock Strikes Midnight, her other books are Hire Smart and Keep Them. And that's something that, as as someone in the corporate world and in, with a lot of human resource experience, I know a lot of business managers are challenged with that today. It's Hire Smart and Keep Them, The New Handshake, Strategic Interviewing and Managing Sticky Situations at Work, if you've ever been in any of those to our listeners. And in addition to being a writer, Joan is an avid reader. She grew up in North Carolina, and today she makes her home in Georgia. You can check out Dr. Joan Curtis online at joancurtis.com, and she kept it simple, and it's spelled J-O-A-N. C-U-R-T-I-S. Again, that's J-O-A-N-C-U-R-T-I-S.com. I tell, as I always tell you guys, you can go over to JoanCurtis.com now. You can learn more about her books, her novel, The Clock Strikes Midnight, and her other business-related nonfiction books, which you might find useful, or some you might be able to tell somebody at the company where you work if they're meeting a challenge like hiring, finding good talent, hiring them, and keeping good talent, you can introduce them to some of her books like Hire Smart and Keep Them. But you can find out more about them by just going to her website as you listen to today's interview. Again, it's JoanCurtis.com. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Joan. Thank you very much, Denise. What a nice introduction. I appreciate that very much. 
We're, we're very happy to have you here uh, with us. I always like to give our off-the-shelf listeners, because after 11 years, they've they've met and we've introduced to them so many different people from all over the world who love literature and uh, some of them are in the in the business where they own their own business and some of the other guests we've had on. I'd like to give our listeners some backstory on our guests. So that said, what was it like for you growing up in North Carolina and what part of North Carolina did you grow up in? I grew up in High Point, North Carolina, which is in the Piedmont part of North Carolina, near Greensboro, Winston-Salem, that area. I was actually born in Winston-Salem, but I grew up in High Point, and it was a great place to grow up. I lived in a neighborhood, a small neighborhood, and the Clock Strikes Midnight, the new novel that's coming out, the neighborhood that I I basically created is very similar to the neighborhood I grew up in. And, in fact, when my mother read The Clock Strikes Midnight, she said, wow, that sounds like Otteray Drive, where where we grew up. And it, it really did. The neighbors knew each other. We all kind of connected. We, as children, we played with various kids in our neighborhood on the streets and lots of times till late at night. It was just a, a very nice place to grow up. And... Um, and I think it still is. Uh, of course, the town has changed a lot, but it's still uh, not too different than when I grew up there. Okay. The the um, and you know what? When you when I go back and I think about my gr- gr- days when I grew up, I hear and I hear so many guests come on and say that how things have changed and you all knew your neighbors and it seemed like neighbors were almost like an extended part of your family uh, years ago. Of course, that's that's different in many neighborhoods today, but it's always a warm feeling. It always pulls up a warm feeling in me when I hear guests talk about the way it was, the neighborhoods were and how people looked out for each other. I want to talk about the southern Southern novel writing, Southern literacy, people like Eudora Welty, Tennessee Williams, and John Grisham, Zora Neale Hurston, and William Faulkner, they're some of the widely known and highly celebrated Southern authors, being that your roots are in the South. How has growing up in the South, if it has at all, how would you say it's influenced your writing? absolutely influenced my writing. In fact, one of my early reviewers compared my book, uh, my writing to Fanny Flagg. Uh, And I really, I was very flattered, but um, I think part of it is that that feeling of the South. My book is set outside of Atlanta, actually in Atlanta in one of the metro, um, the smaller towns. And just that sense of people um, connecting with each other in a way that's a little different than it is maybe in some other communities, it's all I know. So it's what I wrote. Um, I, I can't really describe how it would be growing up in Philadelphia, for example. Um, so that would be very different. I, I think that the Southern um, traditions, and one of the traditions in the South is you kind of keep all your family secrets tucked inside and you don't talk about them you kind of keep it covered up there's that facade that um people talk about when they meet people in the south you know that smile and that hello how are you and there's all these other things going on and part of that comes out in the clock strikes midnight where you see these people that seem to be functioning normally and yet they have all these inner turmoils going on that they don't really share with one another Mm, you know what, and <laughs> that is not 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 and, and you know not just the the southern uh, part of the southern culture, but years ago nationally it was you thought oh families were perfect, and then it wasn't until the 1970s that people started to talk about child abuse and domestic yeah. violence. You 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 would have never thought it was going on. It was all kept under wraps, which does make for a very good novel, and and because of the cover of your novel for our listeners, again, if you go to joancurtis.com, you can see the book cover and what I'm talking about, and the title of it, what you just said, makes it even more interesting. Now, you focus on 
literary writing. Mm-hmm. And literary writing, generally, one of my my absolute favorite literary writers is uh, Joyce Carol Oates. But it, it, generally, literary writing it doesn't generally sell as well as uh, fiction. That's kind of like reality TV fiction, I would guess. Did you know before you published The Clock Strikes Midnight that literary writing generally doesn't sell as well? And if so, why did you decide to continue to forge ahead? With a literary novel? Well, you know, Denise, it's not really a literary novel. Um, and so I guess it has been described as a commercial novel. And But at the same time, I love to read literary novels. And so there is that literary feel. And part of that is the strong characterization. And I think literary novels tend to have a lot deeper, stronger characters. That's why you like jo- Joyce Carol Oates. Then, and also settings, then your more commercial novels like John Grisham, Grisham's books are very plot-driven. And you need to have both the character and the plot going on in a novel to keep one's attention. But the literary novel is more weighted toward characters and the um, commercial novel more toward that plot that keeps the pages turning. Well, I tried to do both of those things. And... But many of my readers talk a lot about the characters, and that's probably what leads you to believe that it's more on the literary side than the commercial side. Um, as a writer, I wasn't really thinking about that. I wasn't thinking, am I going to write a literary versus a commercial novel? I just wrote what came out of me, and the passion that's in you comes out. And it, if it sells because people like it, great. If it doesn't, it's what I had to write. <laughs> Okay, okay. Um, Does that make and sense? I like that that you follow <laughs> yeah. your and that is that actually is to me a mark of 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 a literary writer. I know you said it's been described as a commercial novel, but you yeah. I think people who write more literary style, they write from their heart or their soul. And and I, and I really yeah. appreciate that. When did you start writing? And I definitely want to get into our off-the-shelf listeners who are just being introduced to you to mm-hmm. talk about some of your nonfiction books before uh, that we that I talked about when I was introducing you before the end of the show. But when did you start writing The Clock Strikes Midnight? And can you tell us the process that you used to create the book? This is really such a hard question for me to answer because um, it's not as um, – I know people would like me to say something, well, I started it last year and went through blah, blah, blah. Well, unfortunately, I started this book probably 20 years ago. You're the first wow. person, Denise, I've confessed that to. <laughs> 20 years ago. And um, it began as a very different kind of book, the original title – manuscript title, and a lot of times your manuscript title does change, was Drawn Curtains. And that was what I alluded to in the very beginning when you asked about southernness. And the reason it was called Drawn Curtains was it was like we drew the curtains um, and so others couldn't see what went on in that house, um, in that neighborhood. And the book, the characters were teenagers when it began. And when I started this book 20 years ago, I wrote from the point of view of those characters when they were teens, and then they grew up to adults, and the story evolved. Well, after, and what would happen, so you understand, is I would write the fiction and then put it aside because fiction is very hard to get attention from agents and publishers. I'd put it aside and for quite a while, and then work on nonfiction, and that's when I started writing my business books. And I would wow. distract distract myself with those, and then I would come back to the nonfiction. I mean, to the fiction writing, back and forth over time, until I'd say like three years ago when I picked it up again. And at this point, I turned the book upside down and decided rather than use the current manuscript, I would rewrite it from the point of view of those teenage characters as adults from that point forward. And that's when The Clock Strikes Midnight emerged in a very different kind of book. And so that process, and I would not recommend that to aspiring writers, but that was the process I used. <laughs> can you can you tell our, that 
I, you got. I got to tell you, I, we've had guests on who've started their novels maybe five, seven times. <laughs> I think you had a record now with twenty years. <laughs> I, I, I think you had a record. Can you give our off-the-shelf listeners a brief synopsis of the clock strikes strikes midnight? This is a story about two women, two sisters who experienced a lot of turmoil and trauma as young people. And the first was the loss of their father when they were, uh, one was six and one was nine. That loss um, produced a strengthening in their relationship, a bonding as sisters. But something tore them apart um, and Mm -hmm. later. And what tore them, I can't tell you what tore them apart because I don't want to give anything away, but what you have to know is because of that, one of the sisters leaves and she actually moves to Savannah and breaks all ties with her sister for 20 years until she learns right at that point that she has cancer and she has basically three months to live, according to her doctor. That pulls her back to her hometown outside of Atlanta and her family in order to rectify and kind of make up for things she'd done in the past and basically revenge her mother's killer. Wow. <laughs> now, now, you said their father, was, their father passed when they were young. Yes. It, it, it sounds like they've had their share of trauma. How old is Janie Knox? And is Janie, she like the oh, how old is she when her mother is murdered and what's going on in her life at the time that event occurs? When her mother is murdered, Janie is seventeen years old and mm. um she's a pretty rebellious teenager. And later that's and not not long after that she leaves. Um, and goes to Savannah. She basically abandons her family. Um, Her sister Marlene is two years older, and so she was 19 at the time her mother died and out of the home at that point. When the mother is killed, Janie is her principal caretaker, uh, so to speak, because the mother is pretty debilitated from alcoholism. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah it, I guess, you know what? And the I can see readers really pulling for these two sisters, yeah. really, really pulling for them. Why Why is Janie's stepfather, I don't want you to give the story away, but why yeah. is her stepfather, why is he the one who is accused of murdering her mother? It, without, without telling the whole story, I don't know if you can answer that without giving it away. Well, um, I think I can say enough that would not give away the, or not spoil the um, the story. But the stepfather is not the nicest person in the world, and he and the mother did not get along well. And the um, he, well, let me see if I can say this without um, again giving any away. The police were led to him mainly from testimony and circumstantial evidence from Janie. Okay. (laughs) So he, it looks like, and of course then he is convicted of the murder, but he is sentenced, uh, he he is sentenced to 20 years in prison, um, and that is also what sparks Janie's return. Now, Now, what is her... Okay, so you say the mother and the stepfather don't get along. No. There had to have been something that drew them together, though, that to make them get married. Something that there had to have been. There had to have been good times. How old? We know Janie and Marlene, her sister Marlene, her older sister, were young when their father passed. How yes. old were they when their mother re- got remarried? And did that relationship start off? You know with a lot of romance, or did it start off good? Well, first of all, her the mother remarried six months after the father died. So wow. the mother remarried very quickly, and the children were still very young and still grieving their father. So that was a very hard thing for them when she remarried. The 
initial part, they never really, you didn't feel romance in that relationship. And that that is something that the both Janie and Marlene question, why their mother married him and why she stayed married to him. And they never, the, the answer does come out in the book. But that is a question that the reader kind of wonders about along with the sisters throughout the story. See, you are really putting a lot of bait out there. I'm going to leave you hanging here, Denise, by a fingernail. (laughs) Marlene is the older one. I would think it would be Marlene who would have the issues with the stepfather and that the, the younger daughter... Six months she had, so she was six or seven when her mother married, uh, got mm-hmm. remarried. That she mm-hmm. would be more attached to the stepfather. So I was, uh, that's a little surprising to me. Can you yes. tell us what is Marlene's relationship like with her stepfather? She hates him. I mean, Janie. I'm, I'm <laughs> sorry. Simple. What is Janie's relationship like with the stepfather? Exactly the same thing. Total unadulterated. Dislike. However, I would say that Marlene has more sympathy for him than Janie ever did. And, again, I can't give too much away, but I will um, just say now, in the beginning, Janie was somewhat closer to him, as were both children. But as they aged, the relationship became more and more strained with the stepfather. And you know the funny thing about this is you're asking me a lot of questions that really um, are backstory for The Clock Strikes Midnight and come into the psychology of the two sisters because when the book opens, Janie is 37 and Marlene is is 40 or almost 40. So you're asking me about when they were kids and when they were teenagers and all that prequel stuff that I know about because of the first uh, rendition of this book. I know the characters so well. And I really think that the reader, as they read, will also pick up on all this and understand it, even without all that background information. Also, okay, Janie's 37, Marlene is 40 when the book opens. You don't go back and do flashbacks and take, take the reader back to when they were younger and things that happened well, years ago. yeah, I do, some, but it's obviously going to be, like, there will be flashes of insights and enough flashes that the reader can deduce what life was like at that home on Briardale Lane, which is where, is the neighborhood where these two children grew up. How 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 are, can you tell us, uh, before we go a little further into the book, and then I definitely want to talk about some of your nonfiction books. How are Janie and Marlene, can you tell us, I'm trying to picture them more, how are they similar and how are they different? They're very, they're more different than similar um, because Janie is, um, and again, I can't tell you a whole lot, but... um, they may, well, they may not be full-blooded sisters, I will tell you that. Um, oh. But, yeah, oh, see, there's another little thing going on here. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> Which the reader will also discover. But um, nonetheless, Janie is a very, um, they're both independent women, and that's one thing I wanted to create. Janie has created a very successful business. She's a successful businesswoman. She has um, her her field is um, really, I guess, beauty salons is what I would say. She started out. She has very wild curly hair. So as a young person, she was always messing with her hair and trying to get it to work, and that led her to wanting to learn more about hair and how to manage it and so when she moved to savannah she began working in various salons and now she has a number of her own salons and manages a very successful business in savannah so she um in her own right is a very independent woman and marlene is different in that sense she's also independent but she's married to a successful attorney in atlanta 
and lives in Buckhead. And if anybody of your listeners know anything about Atlanta, they know that's a very nice area of Atlanta. And she's um, she has no children. She volunteers a lot. She goes to Pilates. She does all those kinds of things. But she hasn't really ever pursued her career, which was really in the field of finance and money management, which, Denise, I know you can relate to. <laughs> and um, she, uh, But she does, does have a desire to do that at some point. And, um, but at this point, she's dealing with her own emotional trauma, and that has to be dealt with first. We have a question from the chat room. Um, okay. And it is, are the characters, any, are any of the characters in The Clock Strikes Midnight are any of them a reflection of or based on any people you've actually met or known in your real life? Yes, um, that's, a, that's a wonderful question. And they're really, they're a conglomerate of people in my life. I can see similarities in Janie to me and to my sister, my younger sister who's 18 months younger than I am. So I guess the sister relationship is very similar. But Janie is um, very much, I tend to be an independent person, and I have a career like Janie. But I feel as though Marlene, even though it's a, like I say, it's a conglomerate, is more like me than Janie. <laughs> and Janie is more like my, my younger sister in the sense that she's, she was kind of wild as a teenager, and I was never wild as a teenager. Truth of the matter is, I was a pretty dull teenager. Um, more like Marlene, she was straight-laced as a kid. And so the, it's a mixture. And so it's not really, I can't point out and say, Janie is this person and Marlene is that person and their mother is this person over here. And that's what often happens as a writer. You get all these things mixed up and then some kind of personality evolves and you can see a little bit of yourself in all of your characters. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. Uh, why the title, The Clock Strikes Midnight? Why, why that specific title? Does it hold a special meaning? Absolutely does. Um, Janie has three months in order to accomplish what she wants to accomplish before she gets too sick to do what she needs to do. So she feels as though throughout this book, the clock is ticking, tick-tock, tick-tock, and can she accomplish what she needs to before she dies? And that's mm-hmm. a question that, that continues from the very first page to the very last page. I have to ask you this. Does the reader have to read all the way to, like, the last five pages before they get an answer to the question that the book the book introduces, I'm sure, a question early on in the reader's mind. Do they have to do they have to read all the way to like the last five pages before they're like, Aha, that's it Well, yeah. But I will say this, a lot of things will be tied up a little before then and things kind of crescendo down so that they start feeling that sense of I like to do this as a reader and that's why I guess I did it as a writer. That sense of um, not relief, but, you know, you just feel as though it, you're starting to feel better about things because you're not questioning what happened, what happened. Uh, and, but the very last, all the way to the very last page, you find out the final ending. So wow. you got to keep reading it. And it's, but it's, it's a pretty fast read. It's not like my business books, which are a little harder to read. <laughs> Oh, we're, we're, we we know that this this town is set in North Carolina. Can you tell us what what time period is it set in, and why did you choose the setting and the time period? Okay, the actual um, book is set in Decatur, Georgia, and uh, that's right outside of Atlanta. It's in Metro Atlanta. I chose Decatur because I know that community very well. It's like a little oasis in Atlanta, and it's a darling little town. And it's near Emory University, which many of your listeners probably know about. And 
I have been in those neighborhoods, and I, I, there was one neighborhood I remember I had a friend that lived on that reminded me very much of Briardale Lane, the fictitious neighborhood that I created. And so I just felt like that was a, just a good spot. And being close to Emory, being that close to Atlanta is what, is what I really wanted. So the time period is now. I mean, the clock strikes midnight is, in the, is set in the present time. But the flashbacks take you back to, like, the late 60s. And so when they were young people, they were young people in the late 60s and early 70s. Okay. Is is we talked about the characters if they are any in any way based on somebody that you knew personally. Mm-hmm. The event in the story. I know we had a guest on who said they 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 saw something in a newspaper. It, writers writers will pull something out of a newspaper article. They may not stick with the event it's detail for detail, but they'll write a great novel based off of something that happened in real life. Did mm-hmm. you do that with the clock strikes midnight? Was there something that happened you saw on the news or something you on television you heard and you based this story off of it? If not, where did you come up with the ideal for this story? It's like a, it has a like spider legs, so many <laughs> interesting points to it. Did you get it off of a real life event? And if not, where did the ideal for the story come from? I love the spider legs. Um <laughs> Um, no, I did not get it from the newspaper. And what, is, what happens to me as a writer, now I do, some of my stories do come from events um, that I've heard or read about, but this one did not. And the characters just took over, and the relationships happened. And it seemed that when the book was first, um, when I first started the book, I had no idea really where it was going to go. You almost, as a writer, for me, I almost get into almost a trance-like state as I'm writing. And the characters just get inside me, and they relate to each other. And and suddenly there needs to be a new character, and that new character has an impact on what the others do. And then the others have an impact on something else that happens. And before long, events start occurring that you don't even expect and sometimes don't even want to have happen but you have to go with it and i i call myself an evolutionary writer because the characters and the events basically evolve as i'm creating and it's kind of letting your creative mind just flow now that creates sometimes a tremendous editing nightmare when you have to go back <laughs> and, and and really fix all the things that don't work but at least it gets it, and I, and, I, and I suggest this to many writers, new writers, it gets it out there so that then anybody can go back and fix it. But mm-hmm. it's that creative process not to stop that flow, and that's how I've learned how to write. Now, that does not mean that something could spark a book, such as um, a newspaper event or something you read or something you hear about could easily spark a book and spark that creative process. But with The Clock Strikes Midnight, it just happened purely through the characters. Wow. So I find that fascinating. You just sat down and said, I'm going to write a novel. (laughs) We're getting ready to talk about Joan's uh, nonfiction books to our off-the-shelf listeners Mm -hmm. who are interested in learning more about her nonfiction books as well. But after years of writing nonfiction, you just sat down and started writing a novel, and boom, it just came together for you. And when you when you hear you when I listen to you, and I'm sure our listeners describe the novel, it sounds like it something that was so well thought out because this connects to this connects to that, yeah. and it's the pacing of the story. You have so much going on, uh, and it all ties together that that. That if the, with the perfect pacing, the reader just keeps going, and they d- different questions pop up in their mind, and then you a- they get their answers, and they want to keep going and keep going and find out the ultimate answer, which you said doesn't come until they get to the end of the book. But until they, the clock the different questions it sounds like will <laughs> pop up as they as they're reading, they're like, okay, why this? And then they get their answer, and then well, why this? Then they get their answer, and then the ultimate answer comes. 
at the end. Um, have to ask you where where can the book be purchased? And I also want to ask at the end of the show where can the book be purchased? When will when and when? How can people get copies of the Clock Strikes Midnight? And when will it be available for them to to purchase and, and start reading? Yes, the book can be purchased on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. It's purchased in all the all the major outlets. Um, it will be available after uh, or November 25th is the release date. November 25th. Now it can be pre-ordered, and after that it can be ordered. Um, and people can get it automatic. It's an e- it's an uh, electronic book. So if you have Kindle, you can get it. If you have other devices, there's also a site called Kobo, K-O-B-O Books, where you can also get it. And so it's pretty available and out there. Okay. So it's coming out as, a, as, a, as an e-book. Uh, do you have yes. any plans to, let's say you, it really takes off, to turn it into a print book? Yes. My publisher has the rights. That's Muse It Up Publishing and I absolutely adore them. They've been extremely wonderful. But they give every author a contract, and the contract says that the book will be first released as an e-book in the first year. And then in the second year, they have the right to publish it as a print book. If they decide not to, then I can publish it myself as a print book. But the way the publishing industry is going, as most of us know, there are fewer and fewer print books coming out. Mm-hmm. More and more ebooks, and so this is the route that they take, and many, many other publishers, particularly small publishers are are doing this and publishing the book first as an ebook and later sometimes as a print book. But there are going to be fewer and fewer print books published. That's just the bottom line. You're right. The the book the industry is changing, and just like the music industry, and I think unlike the music industry, I will say I think the book industry kind of stayed a pace of the change better than the, the pe- folks probably learned from what happened in the music industry. Now, Joan, you you also write nonfiction books, yeah. And I, I wanted to ask you, being that you've written several nonfiction books, some which have done very, very well. Do you have a background in running your own business or managing employees when I think about your nonfiction business books? Do you have a do you is that your background from a business perspective? Yes. Actually I am um I I am a communications coach and a communications consultant. And I began my business doing workshops and training in um, leadership development. And I had a staff. I was the director of a leadership development program um, for a number of years. And then left and went on my own and began doing leadership and training and consulting on my own as kind of an entrepreneurial businesswoman. And during that time, I learned a lot about um, the way to communicate, the way to relate to staff, a number of things, and a lot of things that the corporate world was struggling with, with human resource-related topics. I also began my career as an interviewer in a personnel office. So I've had a different kind of worn different hats over time, and put them all together finally in the end when I had my own business. Okay. Now, I have to tell you, I, I, I work at a, for a consulting firm, and they, they, they do a lot of different things, some in the healthcare space, some in the human resource space. Mm-hmm. Now, there are so many people in America alone in the millions who are looking for a job, a job they would really love going to and appreciate it, rewarding. They can uh, advance in their career. And at the same time, there are employers and recruiters who literally almost pull their hair out. That is, uh, Recruiting is one of the, the most demanding jobs. It might seem simple and easy to just talk to somebody on the phone or meet with somebody in person or, or online and do an interview, but that is, oh, my God, the pressure on a recruiter. That said, recruiters and other HR professionals and uh, hiring managers, they always say, yes, a lot of people are looking for jobs, but they don't have the skills 
to work the jobs that we have open and they don't we don't have the budget to tra- spend months training these people they've got to hit the ground running so right. you've got this gap you've got th- these millions of people who are looking for a job you've got employers looking for people to fill jobs but the ones who are looking may not have the skills <laughs> that's right oh, yeah. that's right you Very this, frustrating. You yes. have this. You have this gap. Yes. So why yes. do you think? Why do you think this gap exists? And how can how can we close it? How can these job seekers find these employers? And I know from working in HR, they want to find these people. They just keep missing each other. How can yes. this gap be closed? <laughs> I love the way you described that. They miss each other. They just kind of pass each other in the night. Um, mm-hmm. Part of the problem to me is. The interviewing process has never got me attention that it really needs. It, in school, if you get if you get your MBA, you do not learn anything about how to interview people. I mean, it's like that is left out. Um, they learn all kinds of statistics and numbers and accounting and all this stuff. But one of the things every single person who has any business, even the smallest business, has to do is interview people for hire and finding that person that's the right fit, who has the skills, who has the ability to do the job you have open. And yet people don't take the time to really learn what it takes to interview. So you say to yourself, okay, so what does it take? It takes the ability to get behind the superficial, to really find out what's going on and what that person has to offer us. We can't just take the superficial in an interview. If you do, you're, you're going to have the same problem all the time. You're going to be hiring people who don't fit, hiring mm. people that don't work, hiring people like you that might not be what you need for that job. And mm. there's so much that goes on, and that's why in my book, Hire Smart and Keep Them, I, I take people through that whole process of what I call strategic interviewing, and that's Strategic interviewing means interviewing with a purpose and a strategy and going beyond just that superficial, hello, how are you, let's have a conversation, let me ask you questions I ask everybody and you know I'm going to ask so you have perfect answers to. I mean, that's (laughs) not an interview. (laughs) So it's really, and see, what I learned over my career is interviewing is a very advanced form of communication. You Mm. have to be a really, really skilled communicator in order to effectively interview for hire. And if you're not and you don't use those communication skills that really get deep and really get an understanding of where someone is, you're going to make hiring mistakes. Now, given all that, you're still going to make hiring mistakes. There is no way to know absolutely 100% if somebody can do a job unless you see them do the job. But what you want to do is reduce that as much as possible to maybe 85%, 90% hiring errors instead of 50-50, which is where it really is right now. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about some of the – now, you talked about the interviewing. I can I can think of some of my colleagues. I have to give them the link to, to this interview and tell them to listen to this. Who are I, I'm telling you, recruiters that might seem like an easy job. I feel for them beyond yeah. beyond because I've known recruiters. That is a hard job. Can you tell us uh, some of the of uh, just a few tips? Of course, we would people go out and get the book and they can get all the tips. But a mm-hmm. few of the tips that you share that recruiters can take advantage of in regards to interviewing strategically. One of the things, um, I think I've mentioned communication, but one of the things I use, it's called the POINT. It's P-O-I-N-T, and that's an, an acronym. And the P stands for preparation, to really prepare before you even start that first interview. And not just prepare for skills, but kind of the, the personality traits. What kind of person is successful in this job now? Really do your research in preparation. And then where do we find those people? And that all comes through where do you actually do your search You don't just search everywhere. You really narrow that down in the P. And then 
the O stands for openness in the interview. And part of the problem of an interview is two people come together and they're very closed in their interaction and because they don't know each other at all. But if the interviewer can show some openness and share a little bit about him or herself with the candidate to get the candidate to relax, I always tell people that what you want to do is get the candidate to say something they hadn't intended to say. That's your goal <laughs> as a strategic interviewer. And so you, you share a little bit about yourself. You, you try to create rapport with that person. And then the I and the N in point stand for intentional listening. And those mm. are the communication skills that I talked about. So that rather than asking questions that everyone is asking, you ask other kinds of questions, and then the, the answer to those questions, you dig deeper. You paraphrase what they've said. You reflect back what they said. You keep digging deep, deep, deep until you get to the bottom of that response. Then you go to your next question. Often in an interview, you ask a question, and then they give you an answer, and then you go to your next question. And that's yeah. not strategic interviewing. You dig, dig, okay. dig, dig. And finally, the T stands for testing or really testing that candidate, the candidate's fit, the candidate's fit for the job. Sometimes an excellent candidate is not a good fit for that particular job. I mean, they may be really, really brilliant, but your job is mundane, and they're going to be bored in the first 10 minutes mm. you know, on the job. So that's where you go through the entire P-O-I-N-T, and that's what a strategic interview is. It takes time. It takes a lot of upfront you know, work, but it's worth it because you save time and money on the back end. We have some other questions from the chat room that I definitely mm -hmm. – Want, want to get to, but in listening to you, mm -hmm. I know that what you share, there's a great need for it. Do you do you uh, do you speak uh, to HR groups or, or or recruiters? Are you available uh, to to businesses, to different organizations? I know you have your book, Hire Smart and Keep Them, but do you also uh, speak? And if so, how can somebody? If they did want to reach out to you, if they wanted you to come speak to their organization. Yes. In fact, that's what I'm doing when I'm not writing fiction, Denise. I'm <laughs> <laughs> and um, my, my book, Hire Smart and Keep Them, of course, can give them a lot of information about what to do. But I, am, I do still work as a consultant, and I do still do training, and a lot of training for people on strategic interviewing. And I actually do more classes related to that than I do anything else anymore. I used to do team building and a number of other types of workshops. But I've really focused on this because it's there, as you say, there is such a need out there mm -hmm. to try to find the right people and not to make those very expensive hiring mistakes. Mm -hmm. uh, this is something that not only in the business world, but writers and, and a lot of our listeners who listen whether they listen live by dialing in or, 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 or clicking on a link or a lot of them listening to the archives of the bulk of our listeners um, they want to know how can they use different marketing strategies whether it's paying for advertising trying to build, drum up word of mouth or social media which has really taken off over the last maybe three to five years but what What is the new handshake, and thinking again about writers and other people in the arts who want to introduce their products to a larger audience, what is the new handshake as it regards to sales and social media? The new handshake is exactly what it says. Um, we are no longer... Well, I can't say we're eliminating completely that face-to-face reach out and touch and shake someone's hand. But we've gone beyond that, and the new handshake is all the networking that we do through the Internet and through social media. So looking at sales and social media, the salesman that used to come at your door and shake your hand or other places where they would shake hands in, in networking meetings, 
that's changing. And a salesman who only does that and goes out and you know really just tries to do face-to-face with clients is going to have a hard time in this global world. So the world is requiring us to go beyond that face-to-face and begin looking for networks and opportunities to find our clients online and where they hang out. What what are some what are some practical steps, Joan, that that our listeners can take, regardless of whether it's a business or again arts, uh, their background. What are some practical steps they can take as it regards to social media? A lot of people just want to get a lot of followers, and then they want to push out. I have a book for sale, and then that's right. it. And 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 the people I'm, I've been told time and again by people who have years and decades whether it's in marketing or advertising, that is the wrong approach. Can you give us some practical steps that our listeners could start taking advantage of, like right now, as it regards to using social media to help with sales? First of all, the relationship building. The relationship building is the most important thing in order to sell your products. Everybody says that. Um, Even in the old days when we shook hands, what were we doing? We were, we were not shaking hands and saying, oh, I have this to sell. We were shaking hands and saying, this is who I am. Let's build a relationship. So my first thing is to find out, first of all, which social media you want to use. Don't, use, don't try to use them all because if you do, you'll go nuts. Um, figure out where your client base is. For me, as a writer, I have to focus on things like Goodreads. Goodreads is where readers hang out. It's not the most fun to use. It's a little bit awkward. It's not as easy as Facebook and Twitter, but it is an excellent place for me to hang out because readers are there. And what I need to do is not, like you said, put my book up there and say, come buy my book. Uh, What I need to do is build relationships with those readers, interact with them on their blogs, um, talk about other people's books, Share good content with them. And if you sell any product, um, what you want to do is help people understand good content about that product, not just trying to sell your product. For me, I give them writer's tips for writers. I do book reviews on other writers' books because readers want to read that. I do interviews with other writers because readers enjoy that. All of those things. And then... I'll stick a little something in about my book. So mm-hmm. you build relationships first. You don't go to all the social media. You pick the ones that are the best for you. Get really good at that one. And what you said, Denise, about building your platform and then just selling your book, I have a um, colleague writer who had something like 18,000 Twitter followers. And I thought, wow. That's amazing. Wonder how he did that. And right. I looked at those followers. They were not quality followers, trust me. Oh, and yeah. you want to build your platform with the right people. Otherwise, what is the point? Right. Um, right. You know, otherwise you've got people that really aren't paying attention to you. And so mm-hmm. you want to be careful to build relationships, pick the social media that work and get a platform, it doesn't have to be 18,000. It may very well be 5,000 really, really good quality people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, and I agree. Somebody mm-hmm. who cares about your message and who that's very important and who's going to support. They're really interested in what it is you have to share. and, and not. Although with social media, when it comes to numbers, if you have a lot of followers, other people will follow you just because they'll say, wow, she has 18,000 followers. She must really be popular. Or people just go along with the crowd. So in part of it, that's one way you can get people who might be interested in you because they'll just follow because everybody else is. But uh, you, you want people who really care about what you have to say. So when you send out tweets, they don't even pay attention to them. You yeah. want people who will pay attention to your, to your messages when you send them out. I definitely want to ask... We only have six minutes left, and I, I want to ask. I have uh, several other questions to ask you, but I want to get questions from the chat room. Um, how can someone start writing, Joan, 
if they've never written yet. But they, you know, you hear people say, I have a novel or a nonfiction book inside of me, but I don't know how to get it out. Do you have any suggestions or advice you can share with someone who wants to get started writing, but they haven't yet? First of all, I would say don't make your goal, I'm going to write a novel or I'm going to write a book, because that is daunting. It's like, oh, my God, (laughs) and you'll never start. Your goal is to say, my end result may be a novel, but today I'm going to write 500 words, and I'm going to write 500 words every day for the next week. Then I want to see what I have. So that seems manageable. 500 words is merely two pages, okay, double-spaced pages. So look at it that way. Don't try to, take, don't try to make it that big goal. Now, if you're going to write nonfiction, what you end up doing is writing a proposal for a book. So learn first how do I make how do I write a nonfiction proposal, and that basically proposes what you're going to write. You write your table of contents, you write your first chapter, you do your market research. Then, when you get a publisher that says I want to buy that proposal, then you write the book. So. The task for nonfiction is write the proposal, learn how to do it. The task for fiction is write, just write, 500 words a day. Just go on and write it. And believe it or not, you're going to end up with a book. And don't edit as you're writing. I've heard every writer say that, and I get to do not, because then it will take you that much longer. Just like you said earlier in, in, in today's interview, just get the creative process part done. Just get the ideas, get the story out there. You can always go back and edit it later. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. We only yes. have a few minutes left. I've so enjoyed uh, today's show with you, Joan. Do you Thank plan you. to con- Do you plan to continue to write both fiction, because a clock strikes midnight certainly is an intriguing and very interesting and engrossing book. Do you plan to continue to write fiction and nonfiction, or do you see yourself moving more in the direction of either fiction or nonfiction? Well, Denise, I have to tell you, after four business books, I don't think I know anymore. <laughs> it's like I'm <laughs> done with nonfiction. I put it all in those books. Um, and so my feeling is I'm really ready for fiction. And my second book, The E-Murderer, I oh. do have a contract for. And it is coming out in the spring of next year. And so, and that is a um, cozy mystery series um, which debuts a young woman who works in a psychiatrist's office. And it um, is the first in the series. And I'm currently, right now, writing the second book in that series. In the meantime, I have another novel germinating in my head that's a standalone. Mm. So I think fiction is going to be the name of the game for me for a while. And I'm going to put the nonfiction pen aside until I learn something else. <laughs> well, and you and you your nonfiction books are are again I think they they have a lot of legs. So you you can still do a lot of speaking and teaching off of those books. Can you yes. tell our off the shelf listeners again where they can get copies of your books and also tell us where you are on what social networks you're on. Okay, I'm on um Twitter and I'm on Facebook. I have a Facebook authors page. Joan C. Curtis author, and I will say to your listeners that we're having a Facebook launch party on November 25th from 3 to 5 p.m. Please come. We're going to have prizes and giveaways, including some of my nonfiction books will be given away. So please do come. We'd love to have you. Um, As far as where you can buy my books, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or you can find everything on my website, which is www.joancurtis.com. We are so happy to have had another fabulous off-the-shelf guest. I always tell you guys to tell your neighbors, your family, your friends, they don't catch the show live. Make sure they catch it in the archives. The shows stay up indefinitely, and they get listeners weeks and months after the shows actually air so they get a lot of leg room out of the shows. But tell 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 
tell your neighbors, tell your colleagues the things that that Joan just shared. Our guests always share so much valuable information, and it's all free. It's all free. All you have to do is tune in and listen. Um, So share the information. Share the link off the shelf with your listeners. We want to thank Joan Curtis, Dr. Joan Curtis, for being here with us. She's working on a new book series, The E-Murderer. She's got another novel brewing. Her, her, Her novel that is coming out November 25th, and she's having a Facebook launch party, is The Clock Strikes Midnight. You can learn more about her novel and her upcoming uh, novel book series and her nonfiction books at uh, joancurtis.com. And, again, that's J-O-A-N-C-U-R-T-I-S.com. Please go and support Joan, joancurtis.com. She's also over at Book Read, so you can find her there and at Twitter. We want to thank, again, Joan for being here with us, and we thank all of you. As I always tell you, you are awesome. You are incredible. You're so amazing. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself. See you back here next Saturday, 11 o'clock New York City time, 11 a.m. New York City time. Bye for now. And, Joan, I'll shoot you an email. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.